0: All right. Well, we are in uh, Romans chapter ten, a very well-known uh, passage that we're looking at today, but also a passage that is very difficult to kind of get our arms around and to understand. And so, uh, so we will try to do uh, due diligence and and get a handle on that. Uh, Last week we looked at verses 1 through 4, and uh, today I'd like to get through uh, down to, oh, perhaps down through about verse 10 or 11. Uh, let's say verse 10, that'll be our goal, and we'll see if we make it that far. We do have uh, just a ton of information that we need to think about in these verses. So, But let's read beginning in verse 1 and then review. And pick it up from there. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on the law shall live by that law or by that righteousness. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is, to bring Christ down. Or, Who will descend into the abyss? That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the Scripture says, whoever believes in Him will not be disappointed. Okay? So last week, we looked at those first four verses and what do you remember from last week's lesson? That's the, people, the Jews. Have a zeal for God and in order to have a zeal for God, so we're not doing it God's way. Okay. And we need the stone to show that if you hang on to the law, then you're not able to take hold of faith. Okay. 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 We had our little illustration. We got Hal up here as our victim, and we had our little illustration of the brick, and he was holding the brick, which represented his own goodness, his own righteousness. And then we pulled out of the bag, we pulled a stone, a rock, and, and I offered him the rock, and he was not inclined to take it. It wasn't as pretty looking as his brick. Okay, Until I explained to him, this is for those of you who weren't here, until I explained to him that the rock was Christ and represented the gift of God's righteousness. And at that point, he wanted the rock. What did he have to do to get the rock? He had to set the brick down, didn't he? We made him just do this all with one hand. We kind of handicapped him there. But in order to take the rock, which was Christ, whom Paul talks about as the stumbling stone or the precious stone, whichever the case may be, depending on your faith, in order to take that rock, he had to set down the brick, which represented his own goodness and his own righteousness. Okay. What, did that, what does that illustrate to us? from our lesson that we were looking at. What, what was I trying to demonstrate to you? I don't know how we have a good perspective of what. Sometimes there wasn't anything wrong with the brick? I think it's just good. Okay. So we came on to a lot of good things. Okay. Sometimes that, you know, that good thing... getting the perfect the best yeah yeah okay what else what is what is Paul telling us that Israel has done here Okay they they were trying to and we've seen this in the verses before it in chapter 9 they had they had pursued after righteousness they had sought after righteousness and they had failed to attain it why Because they had what? Remember our... Pardon? They stumbled. They stumbled stumbled over the stumbling stone. Okay? And the stumbling stone, of course, was Christ. Okay? So Israel had failed to attain this righteousness. And then he goes on and he explains it more in the verses that we looked at last week. For he says that they, in verse 3, he says, "...not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own... They did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. So so they had established their own righteousness or they were trying to establish their own righteousness. They did not know, he says, and we'll talk about in a a week or two, we'll talk about why they didn't know and we'll see that this was not an innocent lack of knowledge, but it was a willful ignorance that they had here. But he says they did not know about the righteousness of God. And so because they didn't know about this, they clung to this self-righteousness or this righteousness by the law. Who did we look at who is a classic example of this problem with Israel? Remember, we went over to another book and we looked at somebody who, who in his own personal experience exemplifies this problem. I wasn't in the classes.
1: I bet Paul was
0: a great, <laughs> okay. great... Okay. Great. Yeah, okay. Yes, exactly. This is exactly what Paul talks about in Philippians. That he had done... In Philippians 3, he talks about all these righteous things that he had done. How he... he, uh, As far as the law was concerned, he was basically blameless. And he... You know, he was born a Jew. And he was a Pharisee. And... We talked about the Pharisees being these guardians of the law. And this was Paul. And then when he was confronted then with Christ, he had to make a choice. Just like Hal had to make a choice between the brick and the stone. Paul had to make a choice. And his choice was between his own righteousness and the righteousness of Christ. Between his own righteousness and Christ. And he says there in Philippians 3, that in order to know Christ... He had to forsake all this other stuff he'd done. He had to lay all this other stuff aside. Okay, And this is the problem that confronts Israel. Israel has their own righteousness that they're trying to establish by the law. And now the gospel comes along and says you can have the righteousness of Christ and they stumble over the stumbling stone. Okay, They reject Christ and continue to seek to establish their own righteousness. But at the last, the last thing we looked at in verse 4, what did we discover? What happens to the law? It ceases. It comes to an end, okay? And um, actually, there's a couple ways of looking at this verse. And as we talked about last week, it's probably legitimate to look at it both ways. He says that Christ is the end of the law for all who believe. The end of the law for righteousness for all who believe. So, this mechanism of relying upon the law or depending upon the law to produce righteousness or to... to uh, 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 our adherence to the law, to make us righteous before God, this comes to an end in Christ. It ceases, it stops as a, as a, as a vehicle by which we are inclined to trust uh, uh, that we might be righteous before God. And secondly, as we saw, the other way of looking at it, which is also legitimate, is to see that Christ is really the fulfillment of the law. Christ himself said, I did not come to abolish or terminate the law, but I came to fulfill the law. And Christ is the fulfillment of the law. In Christ, all we meet, when we receive Christ, when we put our faith in Him, we meet all the requirements of the law as far as the decree of God is concerned. Okay? so So, Paul is developing this idea then that Christ is the end of the law. He's the purpose of the law, the fulfillment of the law. And he's the termination of our desire and inclination to trust in the law for righteousness. Okay. now he goes on beginning in verse five, picking it up in verse five. He goes on and explains this idea more of how and why Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So, this is really what he's doing. You'll notice in verse 5, it begins with what? What's the first word? For, okay? And what does that suggest to us? Okay? It suggests to us an explanation of what has just preceded it. So, Paul has just been talking about how Christ is the end of the law. And now he's going to go on and explain to us how and why this is true. So he says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based and etc. And he goes on. Now, as I mentioned, this is a really difficult passage. Okay. We'll get down when we get down to verses 9 and 10, the whole idea of confessing with your mouth and believing in your heart. Very familiar verses. But even those verses present us with some challenges and some questions. But before that, we have to deal with all this idea about, about uh, uh, ascending into heaven and descending into the abyss and all this sort of thing uh, that Paul talks about as he quotes from uh, Deuteronomy and even some from Leviticus and uh, the question is, what is Paul trying to say here? What is he, how is he understanding these passages from the Old Testament? How is he using these passages from the Old Testament? And how does this explain or help explain this idea of Christ being the end of the law for righteousness? Uh, so it really is a, uh, a difficult passage for us to understand. The whole idea of the mouth and the heart. He talks about confessing with your mouth and believing with your, in your heart. Also all those ideas uh, are things that we need to wrestle with. Uh, but basically what Paul is doing here, you'll notice in verses five and following, is he's contrasting the righteousness which comes on the basis of the law. Notice in verse uh, six he says, "For the righteousness based on, uh, excuse me, verse five, for the righteousness which is based on the law, he talks about the righteousness which is based on the law. And then in verse 6, he talks about the righteousness which is based on faith. And basically what he's talking about or what he's what he's setting before us are what these two kinds of righteousness say. It's like they're kind of personified. The righteousness based on the law and the righteousness based on faith are kind of personified for us here. They're kind of giving us given kind of a personality as if they are talking to us. And he says the righteousness based on faith, when, or based on the law, when it talks, this is what it says. And when the righteousness based on faith speaks, this is what it says. Okay, And so he's contrasting how these two righteousnesses, if we can use that word, Coin that word. My uh, spell checker didn't like that. Uh, (laughs) But if you take these two righteousnesses and compare them with one another, how are they similar and how are they different? And this is what Paul wants to show us. Because in their difference, one comes to an end and another takes precedence. The law as a means of achieving righteousness comes to an end. And faith, as the means of achieving righteousness, is established as the priority. Okay, so so this is what Paul is doing, and to do this, he begins by quoting uh, several quotations from the Pentateuch, from the Old Testament. So in verse five, he talks about what Moses says about the man who practices the righteousness. Which is based on the law. Okay, so Moses is writing in the law, in the Pentateuch. And this particular quote comes from Leviticus. He's writing, uh, and actually, it's not a verbatim quote, which is why probably in your New Testament, in your Bible, it's probably not in caps, uh, which is used in indication quotation. But it's a very close uh, approximation of what Moses says in Leviticus chapter 18. That the person who makes the choice to live or to practice the righteousness based on the law is obligated, Paul says, Moses says, actually, and Paul is quoting, is obligated to live by that whole thing, by the whole law. Okay, so let's turn back uh, because really the only way to kind of understand what Paul is saying in Romans is to look at the context of these quotes. So, go back to Leviticus chapter 18. And in the context of Leviticus 18, Moses is preparing the children of Israel for their entrance into the promised land. He's trying to get them ready for their their entrance into Palestine and the conquest of the land. And he says... uh, beginning verse 1, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do what is done in the land of Egypt where you live, nor are you to do what is done in the land of Canaan where I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You are to form, perform my judgments and keep my statutes to live in accord with them. I am the Lord your God. So you shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man may live, if he does them, says the Lord. What is God through Moses trying to say to the children of Israel? My laws are different than the Okay? First he contrasts these other laws, the laws of Egypt and the laws of Canaan, with his laws, and then what does he say? Okay. If you keep my laws, when you go into this land of promise, this land that I've promised you with all these blessings that I've promised you in this land, if you go into this land and you refuse to live by the laws of Egypt or the laws of Canaan, but if you live by my laws, you will live. And so the promise that God makes contained in this commandment or this instruction to them, the commandment he makes is that the way to live successfully with the blessings of God in the land of promise is to keep God's law. Okay. So, really what Moses is talking about here, what God is talking about through Moses, really doesn't have anything to do directly with the idea of personal salvation or eternal life. There's, he's not talking here about eternal life. He's talking about living in the land of promise. And if you come into the land of promise and if you keep my law, you're going to live in that land. What we find out is when they didn't keep the promise in the land, what happened? They were evicted evicted from the land. They didn't live in the land. And that'll come up in the verses we're going to look at in just a minute. Okay. so the promise that is made here contained within this commandment is you must if you're going to if you're going to go into the promised land on the basis of my law, you're going to have to live by that law. Now Paul uses this verse, in Leviticus 18:5, even though in its immediate context it's talking about living in the land of Canaan, Paul uses this verse a couple times. He uses it in our passage in Romans uh, chapter 10 that we're looking at today, and he also uses it in uh, the book of Galatians, in chapter three, he uses this verse to to express the idea that there that that the blessings of God are associated with obedience to God under the law. Under the system of the law, there is this direct connection between obedience and blessing. And when that's, and the way Paul understands that is when that is extended out to its kind of ultimate sense, that means that if one is to be fully, truly righteous before God, he must keep the whole law. That's how Paul understands this verse. Is that this verse is indicative of this principle that to be fully righteous in the eyes of God by the law one must keep all the law. And that's Paul's argument. So what he's saying here in Romans chapter 9, excuse me, in Romans chapter 10, what he's saying is that when the law speaks, when the righteousness which is by the law speaks, what it says is you must keep all the law or you will not be righteous. Okay? Okay. That's the idea that he's communicating. So we have on one part, one side, we have the law speaking, the righteousness by the law, or we might say law righteousness speaking, and it says you got to do all of this stuff. And if you fail in any one point, you have missed the boat. Okay, so that's what the law, what law righteousness says. Now in the next verse, he begins to talk about what Faith righteousness says. And he says in verse 6, he says, But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. Now, Paul does some really interesting things here with this quote from these quotes from Deuteronomy. And, uh, in fact, they're so interesting that commentators are just kind of all over the map trying to figure out exactly what is Paul trying to do here. How is Paul using this passage in Deuteronomy? Well, in the first place, he's not just using one passage in Deuteronomy, but he's using two. You'll notice he starts in verse uh, 6. He says, but the righteous based on the law speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into the abyss? And that's actually two different quotes. The phrase, do not stay in your heart, comes from one place in Deuteronomy. And the second part of the sentence, who will ascend ascend into heaven, comes from another place in Deuteronomy. So let's go back to Deuteronomy and spend a little bit of time back there. First turn to Deuteronomy chapter 9. And I think one of the reasons when we read Romans and other things in other places in the New Testament that we struggle to understand them is because so oftentimes they are either quoting from the Old Testament or they're alluding to something in the Old Testament, and we don't take the time to go back and read what it's quoting or what it's alluding to. And oftentimes we can get some kind of a clue or a sense as to what's being really said in the New Testament, if we'll just take the time to go back and read the, the context of these quotes from the Old Testament. The reason that's important is because you have to remember, and Paul is writing to Rome, uh, writing this letter to Rome, uh, he's writing to a church which has both Jewish believers and Gentile believers in it. So you have a you have a definite context here in which people... There are a lot of people who clearly understood the background. So Paul doesn't have to explain all the background. If he gives you a quote from Deuteronomy, there are a number of people in the church there that understand the background and the context of that quote from Deuteronomy. And so he doesn't have to explain it. But us poor people living in the 21st century Gentiles in the middle of Oklahoma, okay, well, we read through these things and they just goes right over our head. This is why it's important for us to go back and look at these passages. But in Deuteronomy in uh chapter 9, excuse me, yeah, Deuteronomy chapter 9 God is dealing with Israel as they are preparing to enter into the land of promise. And uh and he says in uh, he says in verse uh Four, he says, do not say in your heart, when the Lord your God has driven them out before you, meaning the people uh, in the land of Canaan, do not say, because of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me in to possess the land, but it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is dispossessing them before you. So you notice he says at the beginning of verse 4, do not say in your heart. That's the quote that Paul takes out of, this little, out of this place in Deuteronomy 4, and he inserts it in his writing there in chapter 10 of Romans, of Romans, and he links it to another quote from Deuteronomy 30. So Paul is taking something from Deuteronomy 9, do not say in your heart, and he's linking it to something we'll look at in a minute in Deuteronomy 30, who will ascend into heaven? Do not say in your heart, Deuteronomy 9, who will ascend into heaven? Deuteronomy 30. Okay? You understand what I'm saying? He's taken two totally different passages, dealing with two totally different things, and he's brought them together and juxtaposed them together. Okay? Now, in this passage in Deuteronomy 9, what is the issue that God is dealing with? In that verse we just read. Pride. Pardon? Pride. Okay. Pride about what? The right of rights their own righteousness. Exactly. Exactly. So he's saying to them, when you get into the promised land, don't say what? This happened because I'm good. He's saying, no, it didn't happen because you're good. It happened because they're bad. (laughs) And I am dispossessing them according to my promise to Abraham, etc. And he goes on. So, it's like Paul, when he's beginning to tell us what the righteousness by faith, says. That he brings this little quote. He didn't have to bring this in, but he brings this little fragment of a quote in from Deuteronomy chapter 9 as if to remind us that the righteousness which speaks by faith tells us not to claim our own righteousness. Right? So, when he uses this little fragment of a quote and then attaches it to what he's going to say, it's like he's sending a signal to everybody who knows Deuteronomy, all those Jews in Rome that that are reading this letter. It's like he's sending a little flag or a little signal to them to remind them that when the righteousness by faith speaks, it says, don't boast in your own righteousness. Okay? Well, Then he goes on and the bulk of his quote comes from Deuteronomy chapter 30. So flip over to Deuteronomy chapter 30. By the time we get done today, you guys are all going to be experts in the Pentateuch. Not, but anyway. So we get to Deuteronomy chapter 30. Now again, we have a context. In the context in Leviticus, he was preparing them for their entrance into the promised land. In the context in Deuteronomy 9, also, He was preparing them for their entrance into the land of promise. But now, here we are at what is called the covenant of Moab or the covenant at Moab. And this is when the nation of Israel is just on the verge of entering into the promised land. And they have come to Moab and God stops them there at Moab and He has a big discussion with them about what's going to happen and what's expected of them when they go into the promised land. And he enters into a covenant with them, a promise. He makes promises to them and they make promises to him. And, and he says that when you go into the land of promise, if you keep my law, etc., etc., I will give you all these blessings and I will do these wonderful things for you. But the time will come, God says, as he's making this covenant with them. The time will come when your descendants are going to forsake my law, and they're going to forsake me. And when that happens, I'm going to do what? Take away your nation, I'm going to take away your land. I'm going to send you into exile. And so he goes into this lengthy explanation to them of how they are going to be sent into exile. And they're going to be in exile for this long period of time. And then in chapter 30, in verse 1, he says, So it shall be when all these things have come upon you, the blessings and the curse which I have set before you, and you shall call them to mind in all the nations where the Lord your God has banished you. And you return to the Lord your God and obey Him with all your heart and soul according to all that I command you today, you and your sons. Then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you, etc. And so he goes on over the next few verses and he talks to them about how after a period of time, after this time of exile... He's going to bring them back, and they're going to come back to him, and they're going to come back to his word, and they're going to come back to the law. And 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 then he and then he says, in verse nine, then the Lord your God will prosper you abundantly in all the work of your hand, in the offspring of your body, uh, in the offspring of your cattle, in the produce of your ground. For the Lord will again rejoice over you for good, just as he rejoiced over your fathers if you obey the Lord your God to keep His commandments and His statutes which are written in this book of the law, if you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and soul. And here we pick up now the quote that Paul uses in Romans chapter 10. For this commandment which I command you today is not too difficult for you, nor is it out of reach. It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will go up to heaven for us to get it? for us and make us hear it, that we may observe it. Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will cross the sea for us to get it for us and make us hear it, that we may observe it. But the word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that you may observe it. Okay? This is the passage that Paul now quotes and uses to explain to us what faith righteousness says. But in the context here, we need to understand what is what is God saying through Moses. What is God saying to Israel? What He said: I gave you the law. You go into the promised land. You keep the law. You'll live by that law. You'll do well. You'll prosper. Everything will go great. But I happen to know that down the road you're not going to keep doing that. But that your descendants are going to forsake me. They're going to forsake the law. And I'm going to send them off. I'm going to banish them off into all these various nations. But eventually, when they're all out in the nations, eventually they're going to go, oh, the law. And they're going to return to the law and they're going to return to God and they're going to come back. And when they do, God will bring them back into the land of promise. So that's the setting, the context. But when we get to verse 11, what God is trying to say to Israel really doesn't pertain just to the post-exilic period, that time after they come back from exile. It doesn't just pertain to that. But it pertains to them right now, before they even go into the land of promise. And that time that they're in the land of promise. What God is trying to say to them is, this law is accessible to you. This law is in your mouth and it's in your heart. So you don't need to say... Who will go off to heaven and get that law and bring it down to us? Or who will go across the sea and get the law and bring it to us? You don't need to do that because the law is near you. It is in your heart and it's in your mouth. You've got it right here. I've given it to you. It's easily accessible to you. This is the grace of God to Israel as He makes the law readily accessible. Easily accessible to them. Now, when, uh, well, before I get there, we read this and we go, well, what is God's point? What is this whole thing about sending somebody to heaven to bring the law down or sending somebody across the sea to bring the law in? What is that all about? Well, God's no dummy. And he knows the inclination of the human heart. And one of the things that we are very inclined to believe is that the things that God commands of us, the things that, the, the things that God desires of us are very difficult for us to find out. It's very difficult for us to learn about God. And in fact, this has been a characteristic of man-made religion throughout its history. And it's really interesting, and one of the commentators was mentioning this, that during this period of time in which Paul was writing, about the time when Paul was writing, there were a number of of non-canonical Jewish apocalyptic writers. Now, that sounds like a mouthful, doesn't it? But if you break it down, it just simply means some writers who were Jewish writers who were writing books that were, were not included in Scripture. Non-canonical, okay? We speak of something being in the canon. It's in the canon of Scripture. Non-canonical means it's written out. You know, it's, it's not included in Scripture. So we have these Jewish writers who were writing things that weren't included in Scripture, and particularly they were apocalyptic. They were writing about end time stuff. Okay, and one of the things that was apparently characteristic of these non-canonical apocalyptic Jewish writers is they would claim that they had personally had these uh, angelic guided cosmic trips to heaven and to hell. I've been to heaven. And these angels came and they took me and they took me to heaven. You know, kind of an ancient version of of, uh, alien alien abduction. abduction. Yeah, okay, And that's kind of what it's like. Okay, And they took me to heaven and I found out all this secret knowledge and I brought it to you now. Or these angels and they took me to hell and I discovered these things. And I came back and I'm bringing this. I can explain the law to you like nobody's been able to explain to you before. Or we have another uh, another expression, this uh, which is uh, uh, characteristic of Judaism is something called the Kabbalah Uh, and the Kabbalah and it's spelled uh, several different ways. uh, But it's a collection of mystical Jewish writings. And here again, it's the idea that the real explanation of the Pentateuch and of the law The real explanation of it is all wrapped up in secret interpretations of numbers and things like, uh, not the book of numbers, but numbers and, and things like that. And so there's this whole mystical aspect to the law. And you have to be an enlightened person to understand these mystical writings. And then if you're enlightened, you're kind of on the inside track. But if you want to know what the law really means... You know, you've got to understand the Kabbalah. OK, this is a very ancient Jewish thing, but it's current even today. OK, it still goes on today within Judaism, but it's not unique to Judaism. We have expressions of this uh, uh, within uh, uh, within other religions and even within Christianity. We have the ancient heresy of Gnosticism, which really gained prominence in the second century uh Uh, In uh, Christianity and was really influential for a number of years until it was finally debunked as a heresy but Gnosticism the word Gnostic comes from the word to know and the idea was there were certain people who had this kind of inside knowledge they had these kind of special what we call esoteric doctrines or esoteric truths you know what the word esoteric means hard to grasp, okay? The idea is secret or hidden, okay? So Gnosticism teaches this idea of esoteric truths, that the real doctrine, what the Bible really says is really hidden. It's not easily visible, okay? But you really have to kind of have this kind of inside track or inside knowledge. And a lot of this esoteric knowledge, this Gnostic knowledge about what Christ and the New- taught and the, the apostles. Where, where that's really found is not in the four Gospels and in the New Testament we have, but it's found in these pseudo-Gospels that circulate. You know, the Gospel of so-and-so and the Gospel of such and And that's where you find them. Okay, So the idea is there's this esoteric knowledge out there and you've got to have somebody who, like within shamanism, is a spiritual guide. And this spiritual guide can can lead you into spirituality because he's been given this kind of inside knowledge. So you have all this kind of stuff going on. And all of these things are very current today. And today, one of the places where it's most pronounced is in pantheism. And pantheism contains this whole idea of this kind of esoteric knowledge. And you have these really enlightened ones like the Buddha. Okay? who gets this super enlightened knowledge. And you have to, if you really want to understand spirituality, if you want to understand God, and of course in pantheism that God is you, but if you want to really figure that out, you have to go through this enlightening process. You have to ascend into heaven and bring it down. Or you have to go across the sea to bring it to us. So, you see, when God is saying this to the children of Israel back there 4,000 years ago before they enter into the promised land, it's something that's really applicable to us today, isn't it? The idea that God's truth is accessible. We have an old reformation term for that. We call it the perspicuity of the scriptures. That the scriptures are clear. And any normal person sitting down and carefully reading and understanding the Scriptures can understand what they mean. Can understand what God is trying to say. And so God is telling the children of Israel here, He says, don't say to someone, or don't uh, don't think about, or don't say who will ascend into heaven. That is to bring the law down to us so that we may hear it. Or don't go across the sea to get the law and bring it to us so we can hear it because you've already got it. I've already given it to you. And it's in your mouth and it's in your hearts. Okay, So that's the idea that Moses is communicating here in Deuteronomy chapter 30. Well, let's go back over now to Romans chapter 10. Yes, exactly. Yeah, good point. Okay, so now we're in Romans chapter 10. And we have Paul using this passage from Deuteronomy 30 with that little fragment from Deuteronomy 9 to remember to remind us of this principle of righteousness. And he says, But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. Parentheses. Now, Paul didn't put parentheses. At least, we don't think he did. It's certainly not in our, manuscript, our ancient manuscripts. But it is it is paul's parentheses it's Paul's gloss, if you will, okay when we're talking about literature and we talk about a gloss you'll have a you'll have an ancient text, and then somebody will have written something over here on the margin to explain the text okay and and so in our ancient manuscripts, you'll have the text and then you'll have something written over here on the side, and we call that a gloss it's somebody's understanding or interpretation of the, what the what the text is saying, okay? So what we have here when Paul says that is to bring Christ down, that's Paul's gloss on what Moses has said, okay? So he says, do not say in your heart, Deuteronomy chapter 9, who will ascend into the heaven, Deuteronomy chapter 30, that is to bring Christ down? Or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead? But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. Now, as you read Paul's quotation of Deuteronomy there, having carefully looked at the passage in Deuteronomy, what strikes you about Paul's quotation? Okay, okay. The first thing that kind of jumps out to you is that when... When Moses wrote that, when God spoke to them through Moses, the first part is don't ascend into heaven. Okay. The second part is don't go across the sea. And Paul, instead of saying don't go across the sea, talks about don't go down into the abyss. But he represents it as a quote. Okay. So that's the first, one of the first things that jumps out to you. Is there's this difference in the way Paul expresses the quotation from Deuteronomy. What's the other thing? I've already mentioned it, but... What's the other thing that jumps out? This may not be it then, but... The thing that strikes me is that these are applies specifically to Christ in terms of faith. Okay, and what does it apply to in Deuteronomy? The law. The law, okay. In Deuteronomy, you don't go up to heaven to get what? The law. The law. You don't go across the sea to get what? The law. The law. Okay, but... As Paul writes it here, he says you don't go up into heaven to do what? Bring Christ down. You don't go across the, or don't go down in the abyss. That is to what? Bring Christ up. So Paul is adding to or attaching to this passage from Deuteronomy a distinctive christological gloss, or interpretation, or application, or something of the passage in Deuteronomy. And this just causes commentators to bend over backwards to try and figure out what is Paul doing here and is it legitimate? (laughs) And some of them just go, no, it's just lousy exegesis on Paul's part. Well, I'm not willing to accept that because I believe that Paul is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Another possible view of it is that when Moses is saying this stuff, Probably unbeknownst to him, as is often true of the Old Testament prophets, and Moses was a prophet, but that Moses was actually speaking prophetically about either the, the Messianic age or the New Covenant age. Okay, and there are some things earlier in Deuteronomy that might suggest that, where he talks about how you're going to return to God with your heart and you're going to and love God with your heart, and that brings up. That recalls to our mind the passage in Jeremiah 33 about the new covenant when he talks about how the law is going to be written in our hearts, et cetera, et cetera. And so, so there is possibly this idea that that or that what Moses is really writing about here, even though it looks like he's really writing, look writing about the law, is he's really writing about Christ and it's prophetic. I I don't really buy that. I understand the basis for that argument. But if you look at the passage in Deuteronomy 30, when he gets to verse 11, it seems, as I already mentioned, that he's really clearly talking to children of Israel about what, how they need to think about the law. You need to think about the law like this. The law's not over there, up there, over there. It's right here, and you need to obey the law. That is the emphasis. And I don't see, you know, there's certainly plenty of messianic, Uh, passages and prophecies in the Pentateuch written by Moses, but I just don't think this is one of them. So the question is, what is Paul doing here with Deuteronomy chapter 30? How is he handling Deuteronomy chapter 30? Well, I think what Paul is doing here is that he is he's taking a formula that Moses has used in reference to the law and and Paul is using the same formula, but he is attaching to this formula a Christological sense to it, or a Christological meaning to it. okay? So in other words, Paul is using a literary device here. The literary device he is using is something from Deuteronomy. That parallels very closely what faith based on righteousness says. So he's taking something that faith or that righteousness, excuse me, righteousness based on the law says, and he's taking that and he's and he's bringing it over point by point and using the same framework, if you will. But in this, but he's brought it over here and he's attaching. Christological meaning to it, faith meaning to it, in order to help us see the contrast between the two. So it's not that he's saying, what I'm, what I'm trying to point out, is he's not saying, this is what Moses was trying to say. He's saying, no, Moses was trying to say one thing about the law and using Moses' Outline, I'm going to use that same outline over here and show you what faith says, what the righteousness based on faith says. Does that make sense? I mean I'm not asking you to agree. I'm asking how I explain myself okay so he's using the outline that 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 Moses has used regarding the, regarding the righteousness based on faith, and he's using the same outline over here to explain what the righteousness by faith says in order that we can compare them point by point. That's what he's doing. Okay? Okay. The reason he uses the abyss is because he wants to make a point about the resurrection. Because his message, he talks about the word we're preaching, his message is what? The deity of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. That's the gospel he preaches, right? So he, he wants to make a point about the resurrection. Okay, so in order to make his point about the resurrection, he uses the idea of the abyss as opposed to over the sea. But that is not as far of a stretch as we might think, because in the Old Testament, those two ideas are very closely associated with one another: The idea of the sea and the idea of the abyss. In some places, they're used almost synonymously. And that is because in in the ancient mind and in the Jewish mind, You know, when we think of the sea, we often think, you know, oh, that's a great place to go surfing, or, you know, or you know, you want to go to the ocean and lay on the beach. You know, we kind of think of the sea as kind of a nice place. But typically, in most cases, when the sea is referenced in Scripture in the Old Testament, it has a negative connotation. It's a terrifying thing. It's considered, yeah, yeah, it's considered to be the abyss. So when Paul uses the idea of the abyss in place of the sea, that is not as much of a stretch as it is to us today. You know, we think of them as two entirely different things, but in the Jewish mind, it was not. Okay, well, I told you we had a ton of stuff to cover and we're running out of time here real quick. But, uh, so, what we understand then so far is that Paul has now taken what the righteousness based on the law says And he's brought it over here and he's going to tell us what the righteousness based on faith says. And the first thing it says is it says, don't say this. The righteousness based on faith says, don't say who will ascend into heaven. And then he adds his Christological gloss to that, which is what? What does that mean to us under this new system of faith? What? To bring Christ down. Okay? So the idea is don't say righteousness based on faith says you don't have to go to heaven to get Christ and bring Him down. Why not? He, came so. he already came down. The incarnation. God has already initiated The incarnation, He has done it. He has come down. It's not up to us. We don't have to do it. We don't have to go out on a search for God. He has come to us. It's that whole idea that Moses was communicating back in Deuteronomy of the accessibility of this information. Of the accessibility of this knowledge of God and the knowledge of what God wants and what God requires of us. And it's not way off there, up there somewhere, but God Himself has already come down. It's a reference to the Incarnation. So, He says, do not ascend, do not say who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down. And do not say who will ascend into the abyss. The Christological spin on that is what? To bring bring Christ up. Which is a reference, of course, to the resurrection. So what he's saying is, the righteousness based on faith says, you don't have to go get God and bring Him down here, and you don't have to raise Christ from the dead. It's all done. It's all done. It's all taken care of. It's all easily accessible. He says, but what does it say? So it says, it says, don't say two things. Don't say who will ascend in heaven. Don't say who will descend into the abyss. And then it says, now here's what it does say. It says, the word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. Here again, he's quoting from Deuteronomy, right? He's using that Deuteronomy formula, that Deuteronomy outline. He's using that. And he's saying, it says to you that the word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. And then he concludes that with the statement, this is the word of faith which we are preaching. This is the word of faith which we are preaching. Now, what I've done is I've gotten you kind of halfway through Paul's argument here. And there's just a ton of things, still questions hanging in your mind, Right? How does all this work? And uh, well, that's because we're out of time. Okay, so so next week, we're going to pick it up right here. Okay, so don't reach any radical conclusions yet, because we haven't seen how Paul is doing all of this and what Paul is doing and what Paul is trying to say. But what Paul is trying to demonstrate for us is how and why the law that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So, so all we know so far is that Paul has used this outline from Moses and he's brought it over here to explain to us what the righteousness based on faith is saying. But what we're going to find out next week as we explore this further is this interesting parallel between the heart and the mouth, and the ascension and the descension, and the incarnation and the resurrection. And all these things, kind of, they, they follow kind of two tracks all the way through this passage. And we'll, we'll, we'll study and we'll think about next week this whole idea. What does it mean to confess Jesus as Lord with your mouth? What does that mean? Okay. And what does it mean to believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead? These are things that we need to understand. We need to understand what Paul is, trying to, what Paul is saying here because Paul says, this is the message we're preaching, folks. This is what we're telling people. Okay. in other words, this passage is the gospel. If you believe that Paul preached the gospel of Christ, this is the gospel he preached. He says, this is the word that we are preaching. So we've got to understand what is it that Paul was saying. Okay. so we'll pick it up next week.